Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of Deaf Studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Good morning, lovely Renske. How are you doing? Good morning, Beth, and good morning, everyone who's listening. I'm doing all right, and just before we hit it record, we were contemplating what to discuss, and January has been such a busy month, but we also now feel it's kind of been deleted from our brains and like what actually happened, and I am in at the moment, in between houses, I will move into my big, new, fancy, flashy house next week, which I'm very excited about. And I was contemplating a lot this month. We're living kind of minimalistically at the moment where we've just brought like one cup, one glass, uh, one plate, etc., to this in-between studio place before we can move into the proper house. But at the moment, all of my books are in storage and... As uh, people might know, as you know, I love to read. And also I've come to realize how much comfort the presence of books brings me. So I've been yeah, very much thinking about our relationship with stuff and our belongings, also with the interview that's coming up. But I've been really reflecting on like the things that I find important and also how just not just the reading of books, but just the presence and looking at my collection how that comforts me. So I was wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? It's so interesting. When we've talked about it, you sort of WhatsApped a few times and been like, yeah, not having them around, not seeing them. It can have this calming effect to have them about. And we unpacked our books from our big move last year in December and, and had some shelves put up and sort of unpacked them and put them all away. And it, it felt like finally unpacking. You know, we'd unpacked other things and we hadn't unpacked the books yet. And the colours are so beautiful. And oftentimes when you do a big move, I think there's that question of, well, do I want to, especially in this moment in time, there's quite a lot of like popular ideas around getting rid of things or not holding on to physical things or letting things go, being minimalist, all of that sort of stuff. And I'm like, why am I? Because it's expensive to store books and to move them and to cart them about with you and to take them everywhere. And over the years, different places we've moved, we have let go of some books and then I think oh how do I feel about that and I you know what did I let go of and why and why have I chosen to keep xyz so I think it brings up stuff for me and then sometimes I can be a bit completist and think like well what what's on my kindle and why is that on my kindle and not on my shelf and I can kind of go down a rabbit hole of thinking it all through so we did think about like do we do we want to have a huge amount of space in our house dedicated to loads and loads of books clearly the answer was Yes, we do. Um, but psychologically, what that brings, I think for me, it does bring a lot of the calming benefits you're talking about and that it's like a kind of trace of your life in some ways, isn't it? You know, all these things you've read and, and to bring and quite a few things I haven't read yet. And it's nice to have it all there. But I think for me, there is a slight edge of like reflecting on on why I've, I've chosen to keep so much stuff. It's essentially like really it's insulation for my health. It's decoration. They they look great. They're visually beautiful, right? Like they're a, they're a feature in that way. But I think there's probably a bit of like, I think a few people have said to me in the past, 
have you read all those books? <laughs> those kinds of questions. And it's like, yeah, you, you know, read read most of them, but also that it's kind of like an academic thing of like the shelfie, you know, like showing off your book collection. I feel a little bit in, almost embarrassed about it sometimes, which is probably very silly of me because I've seen your bookshelves, but I know how much you've read. So there's no way you've kept the majority of what you've read. No, so I quite a number of boxes in my parents' attic, which I think now that I'm buying a real house, they are going to deliver to Finland at some point. But I made, yeah, I didn't come to the UK when I moved there with books. But then uh, also because I love a charity shop, I acquired quite a number. And then when I left that, I gave a lot back to charity shops or I even, I sent two big boxes to Finland I read a lot uh, more books from the library or if I finished a book, I have given it to someone and think like, if you, I think you'll get something out of it. But I also am now, because also I am the daughter of people who like to commit stuff. I do think now that I will get my first real house and more space, I wonder what that will do to, because I, I know I have that basically an Ikea bookcase and I contain it in there, but then it was already, I had a suitcase with books and another different part. I was hiding them more, basically. But there's also, I still think that collecting and reading are two separate things. And especially because we're going to talk or listen today to uh, our interview with Lucy Easthope, who's in disaster planning. And I do wonder, even I feel if a disaster would strike me, I think maybe a book or two would be one of the things I would grab. And there is something about books. Yeah. Which box? That's something for you to ponder then for the rest of the day. So yeah, today we have an amazing and inspiring and life-affirming guest, as we so often do. And today is Professor Lucy Easthope, who we're absolutely delighted to have had on. Now, I'm not in this interview because strange sort of symmetry to it, but we were traveling back and we were stuck in traffic because there'd been some form of accident. I, I don't look into exactly what it was, but it meant that I was delayed. So Renska did this one on her own and it's a beautiful interview. Well done, lovely. It's great. So let me tell you a little bit about Lucy. Professor Lucy Easthope is a UK expert and advisor on emergency planning and disaster recovery. She's a professor in practice of risk and hazard at the University of Durham and co-founder of the After Disaster Network at the University. She's also a visiting professor in mass fatalities and pandemics at the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath, a researcher in the Joint Centre for Disaster Research at Massey University, a former senior fellow of the Emergency Planning College and a member of the Cabinet Office National Risk Assessment Behavioural Science Expert Group in the UK. She's the author of When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster and The Recovery Myth the plans and situated realities of post-disaster response. We really hope you enjoy this interview. Okay, Lucy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're very, very delighted to have you. And you are a disaster specialist and an expert in emergency planning and disaster recovery. What does that mean? What do you do? And could you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hello, everybody. I'm Lucy Easthope, and I'm a very proud emergency planner. 
So emergency planning works on a bit of a cycle and where you find a lot of us is worrying about what's going to happen next and making lists about that and big long plans. But another area that I particularly find myself in is the aftermath. So I work both in the initial response to the, the disaster and then you'll find me advising on on what happens next, whether that's with the with your workforce or your communities. And really I'm a I'm a sort of scholar and studier of what happens after disaster. So I've responded to many and I've reviewed many more. And over the last couple of years, I've really tried to sort of take that a bit more mainstream. People have been very interested in it uh, with the pandemic. So I wrote about it in my book, When the Dust Settles, and that's been um, quite exciting how people have responded to that. But in terms of uh, specifically for today, I think it's very relevant to talk about a particular aspect of my work, which is what we call mass fatalities planning, which is planning for the dead of disaster. Great. And you've just mentioned your book, When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. And I can imagine you've written a lot of academic kind of writing and textbooks and other kinds of things. But what inspired you to engage with this kind of writing and writing kind of a memoir? Yeah, I really struggle with academic writing, actually. <laughs> I often joke, you know, there's a review somewhere in my uh, in my collection from the well-known um, tough reviewer too that that writes something on my article like, you know, extra credit should be given as English is clearly not the author's first language. So I really struggled with academic writing, even though I have a professorship in two universities and I, I uh, do assure you that I've earned it. But I really enjoyed this style of writing. But also there's a kind of activism to me now. Well, there always has been an activism, but what I was getting very angry about was people forgetting. And uh, what I've discovered since is a great way to kind of put a flag in the sand about how disasters are managed and what people need and what are the rights of bereaved families is to write about it and for it to become a Sunday Times bestseller and for it to get out into the world. So that that was a, a huge motivation. And also, I think that sense of feeling quite fragile, like we all do, of going, if I don't write this down, this doesn't exist. And I was very, very lucky to be kind of swept up into a magical process where I found a, the world's best literary agent and then the you know, great team that worked on the editorial and the, and the publication and the, and the publicity. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning from, from things like book Twitter that it's not always a great experience. But for me, it's been utterly life changing. And having read the book, I absolutely loved it. And I've learned a lot. And hopefully you'll share with listeners today some of the things you have learned. But... In your book, you write about various disasters, such as the one on September 11, 2001, the 2004 tsunami, the 7-7 bombings in London, the Grenfell fire, and most recently also the COVID-19 pandemic. What are some of the major lessons you have learned in your field? Well, I think one thing that people take from the book is just how each each one kind of pounds me it's quite a brutal teaching you're not just learning you're like blimey this is a lot you know each one leaves its mark and there's some common themes I think you draw out which are around just how life-changing and community-changing these events are you know these are big and these are traumatic and even this morning I've just come from a conference where people are sort of trying to weigh up what did the pandemic do to us you know these are these are kind of questions that in disaster recovery we we learn to understand very early on there's a world before the disaster and there's a world afterwards I think one of the things was how wrong people can get it that's a particular theme in the book 
and particularly around the things like the care of the deceased and the care of personal effects and the care of survivors, is just how how harmful response can be. So the disaster wreaks its initial havoc, but then there are these mistakes made in response, and those are done by us. And they're also done by us not learning lessons. You know, one of the one of the lessons I probably learn most often is we don't learn lessons at all, and we repeat the same harms. Uh, and there's an arrogance to kind of humanity about that. So there's so many things, really. I think one of the things that I, I'm I'm really reflecting on at the moment is how similar experiences are around the world as well. There's not a there's not a differentiation between how people experience some of these after effects. So the, again, the book has kind of travelled very well because all different types of races and creeds and religions and and cultures feel these pains. Yeah, and going more into detail about the aftermath of disaster, and you write in the book about the importance of trying to collect artifacts and belongings, and you describe it as something having the potential of being a second disaster on the lost and the living if this collection is not being done. So why is that so important? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge theme in the book around the meaning of things. So what the disaster sociologist Kai Erickson calls the furniture of self, you know, the lost items of our most precious treasure, but not necessarily of value. I'm slightly upset here with my own personal detritus all around me. There's pens, there's my mobile phone. There's a water bottle. And, and these are the kind of things, you know, whenever I do an event or a conference, I always look out into the audience. And these are the things that often I will be able to return when I can't return a body. So they're from the scene or they're from the transportation disaster. Or sometimes, very sadly, they're from they're from housing now. You know, we've had, I've responded now to many disasters. And it used to be that with things like flooding, there was much less emphasis put on your lost things. And now we're seeing a sort of slight rebalance of that, but still not nearly enough attention. But certainly, you know, in the last couple of years, I've responded to uh, housing disasters. And, and, and six years ago, was very pleased actually to see the strategic advisors at the Grenfell Fire prioritizing personal effects very early on. And I helped sort of broker those arrangements. And that was that was for me a kind of continuation of a journey of maybe, well, probably 20 years of fighting for the rights of us, to, for the rights of those items, but also for the bereaved to get them back. It was a really important thing to be able to write about in the book. I think it's one of the things I'm most known for. The other thing about the last year or so since the book's been out is I'm now responding to incidents where people have read the book and they get it. You know, it's very hard in a in a few minutes when a you know, tragedy's happened and you're called in to explain that you might not be able to return a body, but you know that 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 bank debit card will become very symbolic. I don't have to do as much explaining anymore, and that's been very very helpful and powerful. And just practically, how does that work? Because now people increasingly know it's important, but who is storing it, and where are is, is it being stored in the case it might be returned? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really important point because, of course, one of the things, one of the reasons I have to shout loud before the incident ever happens is if I get there too late and, and, and it's very popular to sort of clean up the scene very quickly, particularly if you're sort of getting a visit from the prime minister or the royal family or something, those things will be put into landfill, into rubbish. So actually, I don't get the chance to fix this if it goes wrong. So there's several private uh, management companies and there's also insurers will will work out how to support so the most important thing that I'm liaising with what we call Gold Command, you know, the strategic coordinating group of an incident to do, is protect the items until we can work out 
what's needed, what the insurer might pay for. And as I say, there are specialist companies and then they will very quickly activate a warehouse. So for uh, an incident that I'm working on at the moment, the military found some space for storage. And then we have various protocols. And what we're trying to do is run everything by the family. So what you're saying is we've safeguarded the items, they're here, but you get a say on what you want us to do with them, whether you want them returned to you as exactly as they were found with your loved one or at the scene, or would you like us to do some basic repair work and cleaning work? So it's a it's a really powerful process. It's actually the process that I find hardest to, it's my proudest work, but it's the most intimate I find to the deceased. And another question related to that that popped into my head just now is, because I know you talked about the statement around 9-11 that like we won't stop until everyone has had DNA research and everyone has been uh, identified. Is there a same kind of time limit with these belongings and artifacts or is there a ticking clock that after X amount of years they will get rid of it? Um, well, one of the ways that we're sort of guided globally is that there was legislation actually passed in the 90s in the USA and then that's been mirrored by places like Australia. And here in the UK and in a lot of Europe, the airlines and transportation companies try and adhere to the American standards. And so they are quite strict that things have to be very carefully organized with the families. We do end up with unassociated items, so items that we simply can't attribute to anybody. Families will then often have the right to kind of essentially make a claim on an item, and that's quite a drawn-out process. Then the items after that process are stored for usually a further two years. So it's not a short process. It's slightly different from the work that we do with, with human remains after disaster, which is very reliant on either the work of an anthropologist or a DNA specialist to be able to make that match between a person's DNA profile and maybe some human remains that we've discovered. The personal effects kind of relies on the bereaved to be thinking, yes, they did They did wear that scarf or that's definitely their notebook. And we often um, do have to unpick what we call multiple claims. So families will say that's his scarf and another family will say, no, it's, 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 it's somebody else's. And of course, one of the things about modern life is people have this idea of uniqueness that isn't true. So you mentioned that I gave advice on the personal effects at the 2004 uh, Indian Ocean tsunami. And a lot of families from around the world actually would say, well, they're in this particular type of print bikini and not realize that maybe it was such a, a well-known high street brand that 30 other people were in that bikini as well. So we have to work very carefully on that. And and one of the brilliant things about the book, I think, of being allowed to write the book, <laughs> is I was able to sort of shed light on these hidden Cinderella practices. You know, there's there's warehouses right now in many many of the countries around the world where this work is being done, but it's so hidden. I think that's captured people's attention very well. Absolutely. That was definitely the case for me as well, to just know there are so many people working in the margins and doing all this unseen labor that is so important. And in the book, you write the hardest part of working in disaster is going home and I've also recently uh, read a book by Barbara Butcher uh, called What the Dead Know. And she writes, she was uh, at some point fired after a 25-year career and a change in political climate in New York. But after she was fired, she found herself in a gap and in a psychiatric hospital. And she had to just yeah, uncover and come to terms with so much death and horrible situations. So I was just wondering 
How is that for you working in such a field that has such a potential for emotional labor and hardship and grief and all of those things? It's such an important question. Of course, one of the things is I'm often very kind of proxy or on the periphery. You know, that was one of one of the things I wanted to scope out in the book was people had these ideas that I was kind of knee deep in carnage every day, you know, and it was this idea of saying that there's ways, there's sort of protective factors built in because I'm not a, a you know, anatomical pathology technologist who works in the mortuary. I'm not a, a death investigator. You know, I'm on the periphery. But one of the things that I realized quite early on was I only ever go on the, on people's worst days. And I think that's very common with, with lots of people working in, in death. If, you, if you're a fire, fire officer, you know, you perhaps get the days when you get to rescue the cat out of the tree. And the problem with working solely with destruction is there's never the good days. Having said that, you know, that, that's slightly unfair to our profession because there are days where we win. There are days where we manage to prevent you know, kind of the apocalypse, you don't, you just don't see it. And that's, that's it, you know, in the, in the book that I sort of discusses, you know, some of our greatest fears around things like nuclear emergencies and things like that, where you, phew, you know, that was a, that was a moment you didn't see. The other big protective factor for me was really the, the camaraderie of the field. So I'm very, very buffered and cushioned by colleagues in the field. There was certainly, you know, some very, very dark moments working in the response. And I think my personally, darkest time was after the the Grenfell fire which was a um, a very very tragic fire in a, a tower block in London in, in the 14th of June 2017 and I had a very particular lens on that because that was exactly the case study that I was working on for us to get better to respond to so emergency planners use scenarios to draw out whether they think there's readiness for something essentially and it was exactly that case study and I'd presented it finally the day before so there was a very kind of personal horror that we'd you know this this had happened but also that for I think for our field in emergency planning it felt like the greatest failure it felt like the you know absolute failure of everything that we had signed up to do and then many things as well went wrong with the response, and that's just shaming. And it's something not not dissimilar that we've seen with the pandemic. You know, things there are plans for all aspects. So one of the examples with with Grenfell was they were very quickly overwhelmed by donated goods and donated items, and we'd known for years that that needed to be managed. People like to bring their the stuff from their back bedroom and their kitchen cupboards, and that's not helpful in disaster. And I. One of the things about having a, a kind of greater profile is that I've been able to talk more about these difficult, nuanced concepts of what is not helpful. So hashtag cash not stuff. And what frustrated me incredibly with something like the Grandfall response is we knew that and yet we let it happen anyway. So it's back to that point about, you know, the, the, the fire did so much harm, but the responders also do so much harm. And of course, the fact that it was absolutely a state-inflicted act of violence that creates the harm in the first place is another injustice. So I think by the time, you know, 2017 came along and, and my colleagues had also been battered by other repeated events, we'd seen a sort of summer and spring of terrorist attacks. It was absolutely exhausting, 2017. I think by then I was in a very, very low point and one of the things that did help was was, was writing. I think Another thing that's kept me, hopefully, touch wood in the long term, relatively emotionally safe is I mentioned, you know, the personal effects and my first contract work, my first work was was in personal effects. We had, we had very, very large personal effects contracts and they were through a private disaster management company that had hired me. 
And I think because that disaster management firm was American-based and had a quite American philosophy, unlike some sort of British kind of stiff upper lip, they were very good at debriefing and they were very good at bringing in psychological assistance. And that kind of created a pattern in me that this would be needed throughout my career. So I've always, since I left that firm, I've always been independent, have my own business. And one of the things that I will top up in my own kind of staff support well-being for myself is very regular psychological debriefing. And then I think there's a spectrum of other things that, that I do. You know, there's a whole kind of get outside into nature. There's lots of, I call them my planthems, so music. And I think people on social media, they sometimes try and catch me out at events. And I'm not saying that I don't get grumpy, but they're like, oh, no, you really are live, love, laugh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I try, although my husband says I don't always get it right, but I try not to go to work on a fight, you know. And I just had a very very uh, longed for much wanted baby born into our wider family and 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 that is that I love it when babies are born they're my hope and my 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 future and all of these kind of things so the things that I take joy in are very a very um kind of well what we all do but I think life forgets to do it you know it's so busy with work and then I'm like no stop the clocks I'm really going to enjoy today and so that I think people when they meet me they're kind of trying to test out <laughs> whether that's a true philosophy and just that recognition, you know, so early on in my career, those first couple of really big responses. So the first real piece of contracting work that I'm doing is sending people out to, to Ground Zero uh, in New York. It's just that revelation of how fragile and precious life is at that point. And that stayed with me. It's not, you know, I don't, I don't, I think people think you might include it in the book because it, it, you know, makes a story arc. And then they're like, oh gosh, you really do. <laughs> it is like, we've only got today. <laughs> I, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And could you briefly uh, elaborate a bit more? Because I've seen you do this various times on Twitter, the cash not stuff hashtag. And whenever something happens, you're like, please don't. And I think, because I would also personally, before reading your book, I would have also been like, well, yeah, I've got a sleeping bag or something or... Uh, rather I could send that to someone so why cash and not stuff <laughs> yeah so I mean again you know everything <laughs> I mean the mode of the medium of something like blue sky or twitter is that you just put out this one line so it's a, one of the I think one of the things about the way that I work is that there's an archive so I might put out something but uh, unless it's some celebrity gossip or some something that I just want to uh, get off my chest there's always an evidence base so the idea that these donated items, not even clean sometimes, old clothes, you know, sandals, broken toys, cooking pans that won't fit the right type of oven, all that kind of thing. The idea that they were unhelpful is probably about 70 years of disaster research. And particularly the Americans have done an awful lot of writing about, please and you know, donate to established causes and we can you know, manage the logistics. Disaster response often is just really big logistics management. So let us do that. And, you know, 2008 uh, here in, in the UK, a big study had done, been done by our Department for International Aid that this was not helpful to do. And then we sort of forgot it. And there's something, I mean, not in any, not in any way to sort of moan about people who, who do things from the heart, but there's something quite self-focused about saying, you're gonna, I'm going to give you my stuff. I mean, you know, whether you need it or not, you're going to do it. There's also, we, you know, one of the things that I've explored in some of my writing about this is, I get why the idea that you giving your coat to somebody else to wrap around their shoulders feels so much more than perhaps just Venmoing five pounds or whatever. 
but it's listening to disaster expertise and research and saying, I know you really want to do this, but let me tell you what happens afterwards, where we see kind of the piles and piles of waste. It doesn't go to where it's supposed to. It becomes the secondary disaster. But what the cash not stuff whole debate hits the nail on the head is, Often when I'm asked to give advice in the early stages, I'm not advising people who are oh, well, wrong or coming up with bad ideas because they're coming from a place of, of cruelty. I'm, I'm often responding to people who are um, reacting from their heart. And that's lovely. <laughs> but one of these in disaster recovery is the heart is a really unreliable organ. <laughs> so it's things like, you know, that, that we, you know, we know there's that, that initial uh, phase in the disaster recovery that we call the kind of honeymoon and heroic phase. And that's the same as when, when we're bereaved or when we're hurt, we can make really big promises. You know, like, come and move in with me. Gosh, this has made me realize how short life is. Take everything I've got. And then uh, we react in those ways. And really this role of the disaster recovery wildcard is somebody going, I just need you to pause because you're making it worse. And I think that's very similar to some of the kind of overpromising we see in 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 grief anyway. Um, you know, lots of people, if there's sudden unexpected death in their own lives, will be fall victim to kind of overpromising from the community. The other reason, of course, for cash not stuff is it allows for a much more sustainable system of help to be developed. And yeah, I didn't realize how passionate I was about it until like I started that and the price of um, infant formula is the two areas that's most risky for me on Twitter. You know, you think of all the areas that I would perhaps get embroiled in. Cash not stuff. Like I will tweet and then I have to sort of go low for two days because people are so angry and they're so so convinced that their coat is the best thing to, that people want at that point. And it, it's really confronting. I love the passion. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of that. <laughs> and... Uh, you spoke just now as well about the joy of like new family and babies into the family. And professionally, you deal with a lot of global disasters and big losses. And in your book, you also touch on the little losses and specifically in relation to pregnancy loss and how dangerous it is for your body to be pregnant. So can you talk about yet yeah, those two strands of big losses and little losses and how you deal with that yeah and 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 I, I again I'm just so grateful for the chance to write about it really you know when you're putting a, a book like this together you're trying things out I was very keen that it didn't look like I was creating any kind of hierarchies or comparisons but it was such a unifying theme for me and and so many couples and so many families that it felt like something I could make the link to and also there were these parallels, you know, the form that we had designed for families to fill in when their loved ones have been killed in a terrorist attack and there's perhaps less remains to return is based on the same form that we use when you miscarry a, a fetus. So there was this kind of experience. So I'd go to a workshop for my work and then in the probably one of the busiest professional periods of my work, we had, Tom and I had tried to uh, have babies and it just we would we would get pregnant we get them to about 14 15 weeks and then we would um, lose them because of a clotting disorder and I think it was a few things it taught me one was about the value of kindness which I think is a big theme at the moment and 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 that human to human interaction and things like you know the meaning of a cup of tea the meaning of kind words and I'd been trained a lot by 
by families and relatives of disasters around the world, but particularly in the UK in the 80s and 90s. And what you ended up listening to with them was a sort of litany of human cruelty. You know, the, one of the very important disasters to me is the Hillsborough disaster, which is a football stadium crush in 1989. And when the families went to the gymnasium where the bodies were being held for them to view, the tear had a sign on it that said, for police only. And so I think, you know, in my early 20s, working with these men and women, I'd really been schooled on, you know, how cruel we can be to each other at our worst times. And that that had given me an insight, you know, the, the, the sort of archetypal challenges that, that women will find when they lose their baby. You know, they'll often be put on the maternity ward with other women and healthy babies. So I was very interested. And one of the things I say in the book is like, the, this brain is always in a case study. It's always, I was going, well, that's interesting. And that reminds me of that disaster. So I was making the parallels anyway. And I think also just, you know, I, I'd never been particularly robust physically. I'd always been quite unwell in various ailments. And that has sort of helped, I think, with this sense of frailty and fr fragility. And I think one of the things that the book has allowed me to do is directly challenge the idea of what a kind of disaster responder would look like. And before the book was written, you know, sometimes documentary companies would say to me, you know, can we follow you for a day and what uniform do you wear and all this kind of thing. And just that kind of very human female uh, kind of space that you are, you know, you turn up at the disaster, but also you've got this other life going on behind the scenes. And so they, it was, it was, um, it was a very conscious decision to explore that. And ultimately, again, that, that general theme of the, the, the fragility of life. One of the things I was reflecting on after reading that, how powerful it is you work in disaster and you see on a day-to-day -day basis how quickly things can go wrong, but still you actively decide, like, I still want to have children. I still want to live my life. I somehow find myself married to a pilot who could... <laughs> who could have a disaster yes, any day yeah. as well. Yeah. So there is lots of things that I thought this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it comes up a lot. And and, and, and that, that surprised me. Like the last year, people have really probed me on this. Like, how do you parent? And how do you, how do, you do this with having children in this world? How do you do it when you do the work that you do? And do, do I have, I got it sus? Not at all, <laughs> you know, and I'm one of the great things that I find a lot of comfort in, as I say, is is other colleagues in this field. Finding your tribe and you recognize in yourself, like some of my other colleagues, we probably, we're quite perhaps hyper vigilant between ourselves, but we desperately try not to in any way let, our chil let on to our children, you know. And my children quite enjoy, you know, quite adventurous sports and, and adventurous holidays and things. So it's, it's been a particular challenge. But the greatest you know, because again, it can always sound like you're just reading from a book of of lovely quotes that you you know you get on a on a on a lovely kind of restaurant wall, but they genuinely are how I I believe you have to live. And the greatest joy for me is to see them just thrive in life and enjoy life. And it would be completely wrong of me to try and control and constrain that. Do I have probably some extra prepper plans? <laughs> yeah. Do I do I probably go to the reasonable worst case scenario? quite often um but also i think you know one of the, one of the things i really loved about the early stages of having the babies was the kit i loved the kit management you know my handle on twitter is at lucy go bag and i loved the i loved the big changing bag concept that was right up my street 
and and I you know when my children get to sort of eighteen and 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 hopefully will sort of reflect that it's been okay with me as a parent. I think one of the things that I very aware of is how grateful I am to them and to Tom because he left. He he sees more of my emergency planning colleagues now than he ever did. You know he was a very busy airline pilot. Now he's retired. When he sees us together, he's like, "You lot are completely mad." <laughs> and we like dispense with the with the small talk almost immediately. Somebody gets the tin of biscuits out, somebody gets the tea out, and we are straight in to floods, fire, famine, asteroids. <laughs> it's like you lot are bonkers. And I think I owe them a lot because they call it like mummy's computer head. She goes into her head. She's thinking about the incident. You know, whatever the incident is at the moment, does a call need to happen? Where's my phone? Is it charged? And they are so tolerant of that. So yeah, I hope. I, I think I'm going to owe them some big thank yous and hopefully not too much therapy, but I am very grateful to them. Wonderful. And in the book, you also write about uh, the impact of government decisions on preparing for disaster. And you note that the global COVID-19 pandemic, which contrary to some myths, was the most diligently planned for risk in British history. Can you talk about this, especially in the the line of, oh, if only we would have known about this or we weren't aware this could happen. So how do you merge what you know with how a government responds to some disasters? I think it's been a particularly challenging part of the book. for some events that I've done that have felt, you know, almost... The, the revelations are so profound that you you feel a real responsibility when you're delivering it, you know. And I think there's certainly a, a narrative here in the UK that could have persisted for some time that the pandemic was neither expected nor planned for. You know, my one of my professorships is in mass fatalities and pandemics, and that would imply certainly some l- longevity. <laughs> yeah, I've been a fellow in mass fatalities and pandemics since 2005, six, and we haven't had a course since 2008. So you certainly think, well that implies that people were thinking about this. And of course, much, much more broadly, there was a whole system of of disease planning in the UK. So you become, and this was very true after Grenfell as well, you become almost the walking embodiment of the lie. You know, when you say, actually, no, there was work on this, that can be very distressing. I mean, I've learned to be very careful with how I frame that we did a lot of work. And uh, one of the things that I'd known long before the pandemic was really the only you only go into a disaster as strong as where your social systems are at the time. So we went into this pandemic very, very weak in our health, very weak in our logistics, very weak in our social care. These aren't political points, you know. These whatever the government that was in, you would just say we're not we're not bringing our best game to this response. And the other thing that happened by framing this as a surprise was we perhaps weren't weren't then able to prepare things like teachers and emergency planners and healthcare workers and the Royal College of GPs. I've just done a talk for them, so primary care and all of those kind of things that what they were about to experience would would involve some things that were perfectly normal to feel. So things like mass bereavement and you know moral injury, they were going to feel let down by the government. They were going to be worked until they were exhausted. That stuff like the first few weeks where it feels quite honeymoon phase where everybody's donating their stuff all those kind of phases would wane and so I think one of the experiences afterwards has been just trying to navigate people through and I I personally feel that 
things like the disaster recovery literature, I rely on things like uh, guidance from New Zealand that, that I use as the, it's the very first reference that I put in the book. That guidance like that was kind of waiting for this moment and very, um, very ready to come into its own. I think another theme that I explore in the book is I'd always been prepared for the state to fail us. Uh, so the first disaster, as I mentioned, that I discuss is is the Hillsborough disaster in detail. You know, that's the first disaster where I realize that the state can get it very wrong. And one of my American colleagues very early on said, you know, you're very lucky that that, that has framed you because I don't, I don't feel the betrayal that I think people do because it's not unexpected to me at all. I didn't rely on them. I didn't expect them to come over the hill. They didn't come over the hill. But what does keep you going is that humans are great. <laughs> you know, and it's a very it's a very interesting position to be in as a pandemic planner because there are things that were done by by colleagues and by organizations that meant we had a much better response than we dared hope for. You know, one of the things I've written quite a lot about is the death industry was phenomenal. And because it's quite a commercial and quite closed area of work, we hadn't got the stats and the figures beforehand to know whether they would rise to the challenge. And they exceeded the challenge. Things like our mortuary management, our funeral directing industries, and then other things like our supply chains in supermarkets exceeded where we thought we would be. So that was quite a, a phenomenal thing to witness. What's probably the hardest, and, and actually right now, it takes a lot of kind of self-care and support to manage because now feels as difficult as the early days of the pandemic because in the early days of the pandemic, I was watching people live through something that I had worried about that we would see, and there it was. And then a lot of my other planning work had been about now, this time, you know, populism and riots and economic stress and families break down and all those kind of things and it had just been kind of bullet points on a piece of paper and now I'm watching families that I love live through all of those things and that that has parallels to the early part of 2020 for me. And you're already hinting on it but you also wrote a chapter in the edited collection When This Is Over, Reflections on an Unequal pandemic and the title of your chapter is moving on can you talk about this yeah and that was a real pleasure and privilege thank you for for um, mentioning that one so this is an edited collection uh when this is over tales of an unequal pandemic and i think my writing is a form of activism really where i've realized you have to put a date stamp on stuff and what was amazing with my co-editors there who've just been incredible i was they, they just carried me along on the journey really was that they started to gather almost immediately in 2020 contemporaneous scripts and poetry and and people's observations even a twitter thread is in there and that stuff is so fragile you know without them doing that that wouldn't exist and so that was a a, a really you know a proud chance to do something and then my particular chapter is is written from a place of very kind of reflective controlled anger really but to move people to a place where they, you know, like we were just saying with my chapter on Hillsborough, we move people to a place where they realize this is what this is what disasters do. They make you question everything. They rip away your sense of safety, your sense of security in the state, all of those things. And that's one of the reasons I think we will see all kinds of different political upheaval over the next few years is people desperately trying to sense make what this is and perhaps blame a particular part of society because that's an easier route 
than actually looking deep within and saying, what do I need to do next? A lot of people will ask me at events, how can we get political leaders to embrace what you know, you're know you saying or to take these points on? And that's not the message of my chapter in When This Is Over. You know, my, my chapter there is much more about making a decision within yourself and focusing inwards that you will tool up, you know, you will learn about this field. Disaster recovery is incredibly revelatory and very helpful. It draws on things that I think are very spiritual and very theological. And you will recognize what harms are done by the state in disaster. But but the, the when you've seen as many as I have, the greatness is in that human to human behavior. You know, you mentioned about having children and you mentioned about how difficult, you know, it can be to think of the world that they're inheriting. But sometimes I also think, you know, who'd want to miss this? This is the most exciting time because this is all we've got. So we just, we've, it's got to be a mindset. Like either this is a very mind-blowingly desperate time or this is a very exciting time. And I was, you know, I, I, I sort of become more and more comfortable that I was kind of born for these times. Like if you go into life being an emergency planner, in, in my 30s, people were retiring having never seen anything. This is, we were ready. We are ready. My colleagues are ready. And anybody who signed up to be a lantern bearer in education or, or healthcare, or any of those things, now is the time. Because is this really in in terms of like the amount of disasters and everything that's happening? Because as I was reading your book, I went away thinking, oh, this is a lot, particularly in quite a short time span. But is it something about the world now that there are more disasters than in the past? Well, the answer to that is is both yes and no, because you see um, certain types of disaster increasing and we see various big risk reports, insurance reports saying, well, there's more, more of this and the climate risk is greater over here. So you know, statistically, we're seeing more types of different types of things. But you know, again, I think my particular field has a lens where we embrace perma crisis. We, you know, we we know there will always there will always be climate events and seismic events. There'll be what we call kind of socio technical events, which are things like air crashes. We know it's an unstable world with with terror attacks, and th- this level of conflict is not a surprise. We are consuming in a very kind of hyper aroused, hypersensitive way. We used to have, I, I distinctly remember, I'm sure we did have news items like that were slightly more chirpy and cheerful. But at the moment, all our sort of six and 10 o'clock news can do is kind of bombard us with misery. We're going to need to calm down <laughs> because the world is going to do this for the rest of our lifetime. And we are going to decide how we consume it, how we respond to it. One of the great things you can sometimes see after disaster is people pursuing say, more altruistic careers, going into things that do get them outside. Hopefully, we'll see some of the things we've seen elsewhere in other disaster responses. So you know, the, the kind of chaos happens over here, but people are getting involved in sport and nature and all of those kind of things. But this is it. This is it now. And, and I think a big question that I'm kind of subtly posing in chapters like The Fear in When the Dust Settles, which is very much about this issue, is how do you choose to live with this? And that is a choice in you. And I, I make that choice to worry about it and, and, and kind of leave it with us, like the planners the planners are looking at it, but also, you know, go and, go and have, a, have a nice cup of tea somewhere else. Don't, don't fixate on it, I would say. Because I would, with yeah, the news cycle and the availability of news and images and things, I wonder, yeah, people have to make a decision both privately and professionally like how much of this news am I taking in and yeah 
if I can't send my jacket somewhere? Like, what is the, the realistic yeah. thing I could do about this? <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest problems at the moment is our, our human instincts, when we watch the news, are to do something. And people go to the place or people donate stuff. And also now, of course, we're seeing what, what, what we kind of call in compassion fatigue. It used to be those instincts. And now people are like, I don't know if I believe that or I don't know if I'm interested in that. Um, so there's a there's probably a middle ground. I It's, it's interesting because I watch a lot le- less news than I ever have. I check I'm updated. But there was certainly a time when I, you know, I would have sat and watched probably two news programs all the way through. But I, you know, I'll keep an eye on some headlines. I'll get an update from colleagues as to what's going on. But I do find this kind of voyeurism that I think I think more and more we're seeing an editorial approach that's quite salacious and quite dramatic and it's just too much for people, I think. So that that would be a really interesting test would be, you know, is it about the events or is it about how it's being fed to us really? And then as always we have our final question, which is asking for some advice and throughout you've been giving some advice already (laughs) (laughs) but now as we come towards the end do you have any pearls of wisdom and final notes of advice to our listeners about any topic you wish (laughs) well I think the thing that we have to get better at and I know this is a big a big theme in things like death studies is talking about reasonable worst case scenarios and (laughs) One of which is a very likely scenario is we will all die. So having very open discussions about plans and that extends into worlds like emergency planning. I'd be doing my colleagues a great disservice if my advice wasn't to perhaps think about your own household preparedness and think about things that you need to do for for yourself. Um, I I was at a burials and cremations conference last year and they said used to be as low as maybe two or three families in 10 had had a conversation about people's needs and wishes. And they were seeing that steadily increase. Hope we see a sort of stronger evidence base for that. But, you know, certainly anecdotally, they were saying, you know, eight in 10 families were coming in having had discussions. Those those kind of theological discussions, I think, are very important. And um, having a little bit of a chat about things that you can do to plan for emergencies, which is something that I, I uh, tweet about a lot. <laughs> I've said it far too much over the last year, but my ultimate, my ultimate advice to anybody is to to live a little bit more for the day. I think people are so anxious and they're so worried about the future and it can tie you up in knots. And the greatest advice that this life has taught me is to definitely appreciate the moment. And that would be my that would be my one pearl of wisdom. And that is a lovely note to end on. Lucy, thank you so much being here today. I've absolutely loved it. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I love talking to Lucy and Beth. I was wondering because you weren't present at the interview, what were some of the main things that stood out for you listening to this conversation? I found it so engaging and I found it quite personal because a lot of the things that Lucy was talking about are things that have sort of featured in in my life in different ways. For example, at Grenfell, um, living in the UK, and at the time I had a really young child and I think for, for for many people that one really hit quite hard in terms of how horrific that that was Hillsborough is something that I do some teaching around so it was really interesting to listen to that and some of the anecdotes that Lucy shared around 
how unkind people can be, I found really upsetting. The tea urn anecdote. I didn't know that. And that's, yeah, a brutal one. So I haven't, I haven't read the book yet. It's on the shelf that we talked about in the, in the intro. So I really was interested in all of the discussion about things, stuff, material objects. But for me, what really stood out in terms of lessons that I'm going to take forward were around, yeah, the harm of a, of a bad response and, and how sad it is that lessons are not learned and that harms are repeated in how state violence can enact these big and small harms towards towards many many people and yet of course at the same time you can't deny how incredibly life-affirming and positive and focused on enjoying life in the moment as much as you can because the only time you have is now what a wonderful example of what the destinies podcast i think is consistently about is this kind of how do you choose to live with this question that 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 lucy was asking and I think many people that listen to this and many people who are in the death studies community often reflect like it's a really uplifting and life-affirming community of people because you're asking yourself those questions all the time. You know, what do I want to prioritize? How do I want to balance things? What, how do I want to sit with all these different feelings at once? It's it's one of the wonderful things about about this space to be in, I think. What what have you reflected on since, since listening back through the edit? Well... Basically, I agree with all of the things you are highlighting at the moment. And yeah, I really liked her analogy of like the little losses versus the big losses that we all on like a micro level and in our personal lives have to deal with things. And then there are mass scale and bigger things. But at the same time, for some people, the little losses are also part of those big losses. And what probably also came through when whilst I was talking to her, yeah, just her positive attitude and her decision to, yeah, I'm still living my life. I'm still doing those things because, yeah, as you said, there's, there only is now. And I also, I found equally, I, I think we should do more episodes on stuff and, and, and objects and death because I am the same that it, it's so fascinating if like the body is gone because of a disaster that may be the bank card or whatever a, f- a flick it of something that's the thing that's still there and then that embodies a person because the rest is gone and i find yeah that relationship between stuff and people and yeah the the second disasters and when i read that when the dust settles it's this build up of all these disasters that have happened over the past 20 odd 25 odd years and I was thinking gosh this is a lot but also the way she was writing is really a growing critique as well of like UK government like the plans are there the knowledge is there but increasingly you choose not to act on it and not to be prepared because also someone like Lucy as was clear she's not surprised by a pandemic she's not surprised by uh, a building accident it's just a matter of when and how do we respond to it but then at the same time the when can be postponed through good governmental action. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's not just in the UK that like often like money trumps whatever plan there is. It, it reminds me of Katrina when the levees broke there in um, New Orleans that the design of that water dam, people who designed it knew it. 
and but there were was money and power and complicated things involved and they deliberately chose to build something they knew that couldn't last if a certain event would happen but then it's it's other elements that contribute contribute to that so yeah it's i felt a lot of gratitude of just simply being alive and also during the interview i was back in the Netherlands because one of my uncles died unexpectedly. And we also had a brief discussion about that after the recording. And even then, Lucy is so great. And just I felt so warm and comforted by someone after we spent an hour discussing disasters and catastrophe. Yes, she's very warm, isn't she? And it's a lovely atmosphere in the interview. I thought this episode would sit really nicely alongside Dr. Caroline Bennett's episode where she talks about the Cambodian genocide and identifying human remains and DNA identification and the challenges of that and why that those kind of state ideas around oh, this has to happen or are we going to do this because it can uh, appeal perhaps to public interest in in to individuals being each identified but how hard that can be and I thought in contrast with the idea of things and material culture that was quite there's some stuff there to tease out, I think, between those those two kinds of ways of thinking about a person and, and, and what it is to have something from that person, whether you want a piece of paper that can kind of confirm that, that they, this was, the, these remains were, were this, this sort of individual or something you can bury or, or keep ashes from or, or some kind of thing, or if there's maybe more of an interest in particular stuff and things. And I did think it was sad and really interesting. The idea of like a, a mass produced product. So the, you know, a bikini that a lot of people actually had that. So it's not as unique as you, as you might think. It sheds light on a lot of stuff around the difference between the mass and the individual. And that, of course, we're deeply concerned with, as people, the individuals in our lives and individual losses. And it can be really challenging sometimes to have that sit against just like the sheer amount of of loss and death that can occur so quickly in a disaster and how that might shape people's experiences of, of grief and bereavement more broadly. There are so many different ways to lose someone out there and that each of those is going to have very unique kind of sets of circumstances around them. When you were listening, did you notice the stuff about the idea of the world before and the world after disaster? Because I really like that on a level of just personal lives. Like, do you think in your life you've had times where it's like, yeah, there's the world before that and then there's the world after that and they were different worlds. And I think that, you know, when she was talking about the idea of like, like you said earlier, the small and the big, you know, the tensions between little traumas and big traumas. Or There's definitely a sense, I think, that, no one wants a huge, catastrophic, life-changing event, but there is a world after it. You know, someone close to me often says to me about the context of their own world-changing event, life has to go on. Life has to go on and just have to go with it. And and I think that's, it, it's interesting to think of that. We're often quite a lot of focus on the world before. And what, what does the world after look like? What does it feel like for you in, in different ways? Yeah, it's also something common, like with people who are diagnosed with an illness, like cancer, for example, that it's the same kind of thing, like the life before cancer and life hopefully after cancer. But it's the same kind of thinking. And 
it's interesting as well to how to situate yourself as an individual in all of that, but then also the bigger picture and hopefully also with the podcast, I hope with future conversations, we will also talk not just about the human disaster, but also in all of these disasters, like the loss of nature and animals and other creatures that are not part of the, the human world. Listening to you talk, I I was taken back to a conversation I had with my mom because I was talking about a, a book called Aftermath with her. And I I sometimes forget that like my mom is a Dutch person and English is a language that she sometimes struggles with as I do. But she was then at some point asking me, I saw you read that book, but what is an aftermath? And then really having to, because I kind of felt I understood that word, but then we were talking about like a translation into Dutch, uh, which would be, I think, nasleep. But there is something about the word aftermath that I can feel it in my body. Whereas with the Dutch word, it has a different sensual experience. So this is not answering your question, but it's, there is something about words and like even the before and after that, there is something about how that sits within you and how that how you take that forwards because there are some just aftermath. I just, I feel a weight on my shoulders just saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, I love when you talked about life changing, like the idea mm. that life change, life before and after. I really like the mm. difference between the idea of a life before and after, different that is to the idea of a world before and after which I think I prefer mm. because it's not just your life has changed. Your whole world has changed, your perspective on the world, the way that you relate to the world, the world itself. And I think it can feel a bit out of step sometimes. You know, if you, you feel your life has changed in some profound way and the world is just carrying on without you, whereas with these mass disasters, often it, it's a broader thing, isn't it? People more broadly feel like the whole world has changed. So there can sometimes be those different tensions between whether it's your world or and other people, you know, realizing that the world is not quite what you thought. But I hope that everyone who's listened to this episode got as much out of it as we clearly did. And also, I would like to draw everyone's attention to, I don't know if this has been a feature for a long time, but if you listen on Spotify, uh, I saw the other day that you can leave like comments on individual episodes. So if you want to leave your reflections on an episode and I'm sure you can do it with Apple Podcasts and all the other ones as well but I noticed it on my phone and then we also get a lovely pop-up to say that someone written wrote a response to your episode which is just really nice to hear and it's those kind of comments also help us think further about our podcast the people we interview and who we might interview next so if you want to leave us a lovely note, you can do that via all your podcast platforms or via our website. And the final thing I'll say this month, and then I'll let you lovely listeners go, is that I would like to remind you that we do still have lovely merch. And I know winter is kind of coming to an end, but you can never have enough sweaters. So if you would like one, go to our coffee page or to the devstudiespodcast.com and then you can find a link there as well and we very much look forward to returning to you next month thank you for listening to the dev studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedevstudiespodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment 
follow us on social media, and of course, spread the word.